Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. There is a dead whale. It rolls idly in the warm shadows of this island among cartoonish sea animals with tentacles, suction cups, and goopy eyes. There are squawking birds leaking nearly colorless shit, and we are concerned with an unbearable odor and the must-be sharks circling nearby. This whale is lodged in the half-moon of the bay, and she can't seem to drift past the reef, even with the water pushing out. Close enough that we can see her, we can smell her, we can breathe her. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Chrissy Van Meter, author of Creatures, which takes place on a rugged, fictional island off the California coast. Evie is about to get married, but her fiancé might be lost at sea. The mother who was incapable of loving her or even staying to raise her shows up. And there's a beached whale stinking up the entire island. In beautiful dreamlike prose, Evie ponders her relationships with her flashy best friend and her drug-dealing, not-very-protective father, while also providing glimpses of the vastness of the surrounding ocean and its inhabitants. Hi, Chrissy. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galee. Thanks for having me. So let's get started. How did you come to write Creatures? I was really interested in uh, grief and time. And um, I was always curious and still am sort of how our memories sort of shape who we are and who we become. And specifically in this novel, um, a woman is kind of reflecting on her past as she starts to um, become a wife and be in a marriage. And personally, I had uh, lost my dad and I was wondering, you know, if my grief would ever go away and how I was supposed to move forward and how I was supposed to love and be a regular person again. And so I kind of started with these sort of memories of a childhood, some based on my own, some totally fictionalized and was just playing around with the idea of, you know, a dramatic childhood and sort of what happens after and I was really interested in in how adults sort of cope with um, all the shitty things that sort of happened to us along the way. And specifically, you know, how do you how do you fall in love wholly? How do you allow yourself to be loved um, if you come from a place where love is not taught to you? And if love is full of betrayal and confusion and in this case with this book, you know, tragedy and things. So I was really thinking about um you know, who do adults become after they have kind of a traumatic childhood? And I love the idea of time with grief. And personally, grief has never been linear for me ever in any grief. It's always sort of up and down and all over the place. And the, the book here sort of mimics a title chart, the sort of ebbing and flowing of time, but also the ebbing and flowing of grief and trauma and coping. I just never see that as a, you know, a straight shot of achieving grief. You know, you figured it out, you did it. I think it's like a lifelong journey. So I was thinking about all those things and I 
started coming up with these characters and building a world around um, things that are, you know, kind of maybe sad, but also I think ultimately, and I hope this book really conveys, um, you know, hope and, and finding love. Mm. I'm, this is a quote that I loved. You will spend your nights reading for truths in books about the sea while your father's at a bar telling drunk tales of schooners and sharks and the unrecognizable sounds of whales. Why did you hit upon the technique of writing in second person so that it feels like Evie is talking to herself? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's, I think six or so chapters in that second person, and they're all sort of formed around this idea of um, answering a scientific question. And Evie's a teacher, and I think Evie is talking to herself. And I think the, the second person in this narrative allows her to say things maybe to other people as if she's teaching them about this kind of father and about an alcoholic father and this life of hers on this island with one parent and being nomadic and poor. And I think it's easier to tell herself the story of her life in the second person and to talk to others as a teaching moment than it would be for her to say, you know, write a diary entry. I think that's too tragic. I think we don't listen to our own selves that way in real life. It's, it's very hard, I think, to accept some of the realities we have. And I think that second person is like a, a veil for her to be able to say how she's really feeling um, versus, you know, saying it to herself in that first person, which feels really vulnerable and scary. Mm -hmm. We meet Evie on the eve of her wedding to Liam. What, what is it that she needs to process about her mother who suddenly shows up? Yeah, I think this book is really about forgiveness. That's something I'm personally interested in in my life. Um, how do we forgive people? And then when we do forgive them, do you, do you really forgive them? And I think um, Evie getting married and her sort of estranged, shitty mother showing up out of the blue and they've had this sort of back and forth relationship their whole lives. I think she needs to let it all go for her to understand how to be loved and to love fully and wholly. You know, she has to let go of her mom abandoning her and she has to, as an adult, move on with her life. It does not serve her to dwell in the past in the way that, you know, she sort of has been. And so I think when her mother comes back, you know, um, she really does have to learn to kind of just, just let it go and, and forgive. Um, I think there are plenty of things in our lives that we don't want to forgive, but I, I do really think walking around with anger and hate is sometimes so much more work than just moving on and, you know, having different expectations of people and coming to terms with, you know, what's really in front of you, especially with a mother like Evie's. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about her father. He yeah. grows special marijuana. Why does it claim magical powers? I also have another question about him. Mm. Why does he, why does her father excuse the mother by saying that the mother had too much love to give to the rest of the world? Yeah, I think, um, the marijuana stuff is, was just sort of fun to write. Um, you know, I think that's a little hint of magical realism there. I mean, of course it's just weed, but you know, it's sort of this fun, you know, backstory and tale of this weed growing on this sort of almost mythical, magical Island that it's the best weed in the world. And that's sort of their livelihood. But I think that, um, I think something I was interested in exploring and especially with this mother and father, 
I think it's so hard to love people who are complicated. And I think that's what we (laughs) all continue to do. And I think people have many versions of themselves. And I think this father is so willing to forgive this kind of absent mother because he loves her. And he's really good at sort of, you know, not admitting the truth to himself about who she is. And and I do think it's possible to love people who are, who are bad. And I think Evie does that with her father and mother. But I really, I think for me, their love story of these parents is, you know, really sad um, and doesn't work out. But I, but I think the father forgiving the mother is a lot of projection as well. He, he wants to be forgiven too. And I think he's eager for that forgiveness, um, you know, throughout the book. Mm-hmm. The island where they are is, uh, the fictional island is 40 miles or so from L.A. And it's a vacation spot with giant homes in addition to a thriving fishing industry. Mm-hmm. So what was your inspiration? So I grew up... Um, here in the LA area. And I grew up um, with my dad, I spent a lot of time in Orange County and uh, he lived in Newport Beach. Um, and Newport Beach is actually, part of it is the Balboa Peninsula. So I spent a lot of time with him, a father kind of similar to the one in the book, sort of surrounded by water on all three sides. And it's a place where once you get a parking spot, you just never leave. It's a tourist town. Um, and we didn't have any money at all, but there was this interesting dichotomy of extremely wealthy people and then, you know, working class people who are like cleaning the homes and working in the restaurants and stuff. And so I was really inspired by by growing up there and watching these two worlds sort of collide. And there is so much magic, I think, to California and Southern California and LA. And I think for me, Winter Island is really, you know, Big Sur, Malibu, La Jolla, Balboa, um, all of these kind of really mythical looking places that exist, you know, right in my backyard. So I couldn't help but sort of want to write a California book. And then second, you know, the island came so naturally, one, metaphorically, it works so well. And then, you know, two, something I I know so well, feeling so trapped uh, by by a literal place, um, while also, you know, emotionally feeling so trapped in, in my life as well. So yeah, I think I've had people read the book um, and email me just strangers and they're like, they always place a different place for it, which I love. I've had people from Florida say it reminds them of Key West. I've had, mm-hmm. you know, all different places. And I, to me, that feels really great that, you know, we're able to sort of read this as any beach town because in a lot of ways, they're all very, very similar, you know? Mm-hmm. Why is the memory of the tsunami so important in Evie's mind? I think she's at an age in that memory. I think she's about, you know, she's in elementary school. So um, I think the tsunami and all the weather events are a way of her remember for her to remember things. And I think we do that in real life. You know, we sort of um, blow up sort of these kind of events that happen. And so I love this idea of her remembering this insane tsunami that's coming, but also a memory of the first time of her, um, her father taking care of her. You know, he sort of takes care of her in this situation and makes sure that they're okay. But also it's a moment for her to realize that he's not doing the best uh, as a father. All the other fathers have sort of evacuated their families off the island. And, you know, this father uh, wants to sell cocaine before you know and go to the butcher before they run out of food and so I think 
you know, it's the first time she's old enough to realize though she's safe and loved. Um, maybe she doesn't have, you know, father of the year raising her and maybe he's not, you know, your typical father. Yeah. The weather is almost like another character coming in and out in various costumes, destroying or bringing yeah. sunshine. So uh, weather, what's your relationship? Yeah, I think, you know, making this fictional island gave me a lot of room to play with that. But again, I was thinking about how we remember things. And I remember the Northridge earthquake here in L.A. when I was a little kid. And um, the way I remember it was like my neighborhood burning down. And I think I was in like third grade or something. And that's not what happened. But the way I remember these big events, you know, as a child, I think you everything is a little bit skewed. And so this weather sort of gave me an opportunity for her to remember mundane, shitty things in her life, but kind of based around these, you know, tsunamis and hurricanes and wind and all of these types of things. Um, so yeah, I was, again, I still, I am totally interested in this idea of memory and time and none of it ever really feeling linear, even in real life uh, or chronological. So I just thought the weather was like a good place for her to reflect on all the little kind of goods and bads and little tragedies and betrayals in her life centered around sort of something that would probably, especially as a child, be a, be a big sort of memory. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Evie remembers that everything was wet, nothing ever dried, and they kept trying to ship things from the mainland. And that leads her to thinking about Mary. What happens with Mary? So Mary is a really interesting character. Mary is a woman um, who's obviously not her mother, but uh, her father has this sort of pretty good relationship with. And if if her father was going to get his shit together and move on and remarry, it would have been with Mary. But what happens with Mary is obviously doesn't work out (laughs) between the dad and and her dad and Mary because he's still in love with uh, his ex-wife. But and, you know, he's he's not all the way together and can't make it work and afraid of commitment. But um, Evie keeps a relationship with Mary. Mary becomes a mother figure to her and a friend. And I think in a way that um, young girls need women figures in their life. That's kind of what Mary is to her. And, you know, they sort of write letters back and forth and they sort of have this kind of motherly friendship that happens where... Um, Mary is really protective of Evie in a lot of ways. And I don't think Evie's ever really felt that. So it was important for me to have someone in her life that even though it's sort of brief and sort of sparse, she does understand that there are people who are good and and who can, you know, love her. Mm, She was a lovely character. Um, Why do people keep giving Evie's father donations of places to live, boats, all kinds of things. What's going on there? Well, I mean, he is the town weed dealer, among other things. I sort of think of him as like a jack of all trades and living kind of within his own bartering system. So I think 
a lot of those things are sort of favors and drug related things like that. But also one thing I think is so true about him is he's very charismatic as all, a lot of these types of people are. And a lot of people love him and he's fun at a party and, and people feel sorry for him from time to time. And he's got this little daughter, he's sort of toting around and, you know, there's no woman in, in their lives. And I think there's some pity there. I think some of it is, again, that sort of bartering kind of deal that happens there. And, and also, you know, you're in a town where a lot of people don't live there year round. So there is sort of these funny open spaces that are, you know, being used by just working class people in these times in the off season and stuff. So I don't necessarily think he's a person who was asking for a handout, but I do think of him as someone who is, you know, charming, charismatic enough to sort of weasel his way through life and kind of con his way into a life he he really did want to live. Hmm. So Winter Island, it's kind of funny to me as a Midwesterner, I think of LA as just sunshine and <laughs> warmth all the time. It gets a little cold, like they people put on a a windbreaker and they're fine. So it's called Winter Island. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. I mean, I think I just love this idea of weather and memory and I really wanted to push it to the limits and I wanted it to not necessarily feel like LA, but it's, but all the other kind of elements of California, sort of the natural world of California and, and bring that um, to life. I mean, there's no actual magic that happens in it, but it certainly borders on these things, right? Like there's a volcano, there's snow, there's all these sorts of things. But I do think it is a misconception that LA is just sunny all the time. I mean, it is 95 degrees here today, but (laughs) very hot. Um, But no, I mean, we, especially if you travel outside of the city, I mean, we have huge 8,000 foot granite mountains in the background. This is the only place in the one of the places in the world you can go surfing in the morning and snowboarding in the afternoon. I mean, we have a really rich natural environment here alone. California is just naturally one of one of the weirdest wonders because we could almost exist without anything else. We have so many different climates and things. So while it, you know, quite literally couldn't that kind of weather wouldn't or couldn't happen 40 miles off the coast of L.A., um, sort of in my imagination, I wanted to, to bring together all the elements of California and kind of put it together on this, you know, little tiny island out there. Yeah. So this is another quote. The tourists treat Winter Island like a mythical place where they were excused for littering, double parking, loitering, and any other sin they could find for their holiday. I'm wondering if that's a jab at, uh, fellow Los Angelinos or Americans or people in general? I think it's just, you know, everyone. I mean, I, I think specifically with this book, I, I am talking a lot about nature and even climate change and, and having these extreme weathers is something that like we all better get used to, you know? And I think this idea to me and something I've seen growing up in these tourist places is people just trash trash these places. I mean, even uh, like the national parks and state parks here. And I don't think people care as much as they should. And I think, um, you know, when you have these tourist towns, a lot of people come in, they party and drink and then they, and then they leave and they, they don't, uh, pick up after themselves. And I think specifically if you've ever been to Newport beach, um, there's so many tourists that come in there, uh, 
and they come in for the day and, you know, it's, it's just kind of crazy how tourism works anywhere. So I think, you know, it's definitely in this mythical kind of place I've made up. I wanted it to be even more extreme that people don't respect this Island for what it is. They just want to go out there and enjoy it for when they need it, but they have no interest in sort of protecting it. And I think that's kind of a jab at the whole world. Here we are living on this planet and I don't think a lot of people even think twice about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Evie introduces her best friend Rook by saying that she was the opposite of, of Evie. She has blonde hair, wild blue eyes and a rich father. Yeah. Let's talk about her a little bit. Yeah. I, I, First of all, I love their friendship. It's super messy. And I think girl teenage friendships and just teenage friendships in general are so weird and important. And there's like in this friendship, I think some obsession, you know, and I think Rook, um, the dichotomy between Rook and Evie was something really fun to write because I love the idea of this rich girl on the island who lives so differently than Evie, who's practically homeless some of the times and, you know, bouncing around from boat to boat or apartment to apartment. Um, And I like the idea of, you know, Rook might end up being, you know, uh, more messed up than than Evie in some ways, right? Because she doesn't really have love from either of her parents. They're sort of just absent altogether and, you know, filling her up with money and things. And so I was, I'm, interested in that in real life, of course, but I thought it would be a really fun friendship um, for these girls to explore. And I think, you know, again, I think those teenage friendships for, for girls, especially heterosexual girls who are just trying to go out and like date guys and have this weird, um, you know, like these two sneak out all the time and it's almost a competition between them. It feels so I, I was really interested in kind of um, playing with that and, and letting, those two characters kind of explore, you know, what does it really mean for these girl friendships and, and, you know, forgiveness between them and their own betrayals. Mm-hmm. What about Liam? He and Evie get married. We, the, the book opens when they're about to get married and he's possibly lost at sea. What's his story? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Liam is a little muted in this story because, because it's really about Evie figuring out, who she is and who she wants to love. But I think Liam is very much a person who wants to love Evie and he wants to give himself to her, but she has so many hangups and so many walls. Um, and a lot of it's about him slowly breaking them down and going through this marriage together where they hadn't really worked out or talked about what they really, really wanted deep down. I think Evie is in an open marriage with Liam because she thinks maybe it'll be easier for her or that's what he wants. Uh, when in fact, you know, they have to sort of rework their entire marriage because she's been so closed off. And I think a lot of her, you know, walls and her being closed off has to do with, um, one, the crazy childhood she had, but two of really forgiving and letting things go so she can, you know, focus on herself and, and move on and actually be happy in a relationship. I think that's kind of like her, her struggle. So I think, I think Liam is, um, just like a lovely person who wants to love her and isn't also able to express um, that he wants her to like move on and, and move on from all of her past things so that they can, they can be together. Mm-hmm. I'm just sorry that that Island doesn't really exist 40 miles west of LA. 
It sounds like a perfect place to go. <laughs> I would like to go there as well. <laughs> um, so I enjoyed it so much. I really loved reading um, the beautiful prose and you kind of transported me from rainy days um, into that, I don't know, everything more dramatic. Even their rain was more dramatic. <laughs> so, so Chrissy, what are you working on next? Oh, the dreaded question. Um, I am working on another novel, actually. Um, right now I'm doing a lot of research and I'm really focused uh, on the Yosemite Valley um, and another California book, I think. Um, and I'm really exploring motherhood, what it means to be a mother, what it means not to be a mother, um, and kind of just piecing it together and trying to take my time. And, you know, the world is crazy always, especially now. So I'm trying to be nice to myself if I'm not scribbling away all day and I'm just eating ice cream instead. So it's a, it's slow coming, but yeah, working on another book. There's nothing wrong with ice cream. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Chrissy Van Meter, whose debut novel is Creatures. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Book Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle's an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash NBN forward slash join. <laughs>